This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. President Trump recently announced that tariffs would be added to steel and aluminum coming into the U.S. The reasoning is seen as the impact that those products have coming in from China and other locations. Except that the percentage of steel and aluminum that comes in from that country, specifically China, makes up a small portion of the overall product. And that would mean that these tariffs could impact many other countries as well. Part of President Trump's goal seems to be trying to help out a once great sector of U.S. business that has fallen on some harder times in the last couple of decades. But the question being asked is, is he going about it in the right manner? We pose that question and others to Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, who you also hear as co-host of Behind the Markets every Friday at 1 p.m. right here on Sirius XM 111. He joins me in the studio. And also on the phone is Matt Gold, who's an adjunct professor of law at Fordham University, and he is also a former deputy the Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for North America. Jeremy, great to see you as always. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Dan. Thank you. Matt, great to have you with us today. Great to be here, Dan. Thank you. Uh, first, uh, Jeremy, your reaction to, to this move? Well, you know, this was always uh, the part of Trump that the market never liked. I mean, in fact, you know, before the election, uh, you know, the market seemed to have a clear preference for Clinton over Trump. Uh, and it was mainly fear of trade uh, tariffs, restrictions, quotas, barriers, uh, and whatever. Um, of course, once they once he was elected, they also realized they can get a Republican tax cut that would be very favorable, and that, of course, was at least at that time, you know, overwhelming. And uh, they hoped he would forget about his other part of his agenda. Well, he seems to now have. Uh, Remembered the other part of his agenda. <laughs> <laughs> Remembered the other part of agenda. Now you know it's not extensive at this point. Uh, there's threats. You know, Trump has made a lot of threats and doesn't carry uh, through with them. A lot of Republicans are not happy about yeah. this, and executives are not happy about this. So he's getting a very different feedback from you know, moving on with the corporate tax cut, which Republicans and executives were very happy with. Matt, your reaction. Um, this is anything from bad to a complete train wreck. Um, it's uh, the implications are very potentially very significant, potentially very very severe. Um, at a minimum, it's going to cause it will cause um, increase in prices of a myriad of goods and services across uh, the U.S. economy. Uh, it's certainly going to cause. Um, an undermining of the credibility of the global trading system because the move will violate U.S. obligations to the World Trade Organization. Remember, the United States is the world's foundational economy. We're the chief architect of all the World Trade Organization agreements, <clears throat> which comprise the global trading system on which the whole global economy is based. So when we commit a violation and one that's, that's this large, and we do it knowing we're breaking the rules that undermines the entire system, which really threatens um, very serious implications. At a minimum, certainly there'll be uh, litigation against us at the World Trade Organization and eventually uh, a significant retaliation. Other countries 
will do exactly what we're doing back to us. They could do that immediately. Um, so it's it's uh, we're risking a global trade war. Jeremy, do you think we're headed for that? I I don't think so. But uh, I mean, not the the risks are not zero as as uh, as Max said. I mean, there's. Uh, this is the this is the prime thing that the market has always worried about. Um, I mean, a trade war is implanted in uh, many Republicans' minds as uh, you know the cause of the Great Depression or a major cause of the Great Depression, the Smoot-Hawley tariffs and the, the ramping up of of those. Uh, uh, so. Trump is going to have a much harder time implementing this seriously because and unilaterally without Republican acquiescence, which I don't think is going to be there. They don't have enough uh, enough margin here. Uh, So, uh, you know, my my, I'm saying I don't think it can be implemented on the scale that he threatens at this point. And. And uh, it's uh, it's more it's more bluster. But uh, that is it's not a slam dunk that this cannot escalate into something much worse. But in terms of the markets, this is just kind of continued. This has been the next reason for that level of volatility we have seen over the last month to six weeks. Well, you know, I mean, I still think I mean, I still think the biggest threat to the market this year is still going to be rising interest rates. Um, but this obviously, if it blows up into something big, will be a much right. bigger threat. Um, and the political ramifications, you know, the midterm elections are yeah. eight eight months away, and uh, you know, Republicans are in very serious uh, uh, problems with retaining the House of Representatives. So this is going to lead to all sorts of, of, of problems. So there's going to be much more pushback. Uh, by the Republicans on this, then um, so far they're sort of in shock and sort of waiting to see. Well, how serious is it going to be? Is there going to be retaliation? We do need. We do know that a lot of the trade agreements do need to be renegotiated, and some of that could actually be good for the United States. But, but nonetheless, um, uh, clearly you can see the fear of the market and and why it's added to the. Uh, downward pressure. Well, Matt, it it was interesting uh, on Friday and over the weekend, some of the commentary coming out by people that were uh, that are in the White House and uh, involved in this, uh, there was, I think it's, you know, now kind of a, a, almost a somewhat famous interviews that, that Wilbur Ross was giving while he was holding up a can of, of Campbell's soup, you know, and, and he was talking about how this seemingly is not a big deal. Uh, give us your thoughts on this part of it. Sure. Uh, first of all, let me just jump back and uh, and follow up on something that Jeremy just said. You know, it wasn't just that the Smoot-Hawley tariffs um, implemented by a Republican president, Republican House and Senate um, after the crash uh, in 29 um, was the major cause of the Great Depression. It was that it sparked a trade war, which uh, in Europe became far worse than the United States, and it sent Europe European economy into a downward spiral far worse than the Great Depression here to the point that banks failed, currencies were worthless. And remember that uh, an obscure political party uh, in Germany, which had got no traction in 10 years, the Nazi party suddenly came to power and it's considered the largest single cause of the Second World War. Um, the, the potential catastrophe of a trade war goes way beyond a depression, way beyond a depression, especially because what collapsed the economy of Europe in the 
early 30s, today would collapse the global economy instantly at the speed of electricity. You couldn't have a, one continent collapse in an isolated fashion. Um, as far as Wilbur Ross on CNBC with a can of Coke, um, yeah, I was watching that, uh, and I was on CNBC a little bit later after him and didn't have a chance to point no. out that he said many things that were incorrect. Um, but the long and the short of it is all he was talking about at that time was the inflationary consequences of increasing the price of steel uh, and, and aluminum on the U.S. market. There are other implications that are far, far more serious directly to the U.S. economy and in the yeah. long run. Well, and, th- and that's been brought up in a variety of articles, Matt, over the weekend, that it, it's the impact on potentially the steel and aluminum industries is one thing, but also it's all of the ancillary industries that, are, uh, that use these products as well that could be uh, feeling an impact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every... Every sector that buys anything from anyone who buys steel and aluminum. Plus, you know, again, you know, if we trigger a global trade war, then we're talking about something far more serious than just increases of prices of everything in the U.S. economy. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions in studio with Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel and on the line with Matt Gold, who's an adjunct professor of law at Fordham University and also a former deputy assistant U.S. trade representative for North America. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You mentioned, uh, Professor Siegel, about how you don't think that this feels like it will be able to move forward because of the Republican pushback, but also seemingly there felt like there was pushback within the White House itself to yeah. to, to to bringing this idea forward, oh, yeah. which seemingly was a surprise to a few people well, in there. you see, there's the Republican agenda for the economy, um, which is good for the stock market and has been. And to the extent that we uh, that Trump is, of course, a Republican president, he's an enabler of the Repo- that part of the yeah. Republican agenda. Then there's the Trump agenda that does that differs from the Republican agenda. This is the trade restrictions and the immigrant description uh, restrictions. Those two parts the market does not like. So, uh, you know, now he is moving into the part of. His agenda, which did not uh, synchronize and correspond to the Republican agenda, and he's going to get pushback from the White House. He's going to get pushback from Republicans. I mean, this idea, you know, national security, I mean, it's sort of ludicrous. Uh, I mean, he can do a number of things unilaterally, but Congress could step in the way. And as I said, uh, one has to remember, here is a president that's very proud of the fact that the stock market has done very well over his tenure. Yeah. Uh, if the market starts tanking because of these policies, um, it doesn't look good, and it doesn't look good for him. And he might register well. You know, I mean, would he, how far does he want to push ahead unilaterally on this? If one of the uh, you know the accomplishments he's crowing about uh, suddenly falls apart, <laughs> and uh, I mean that would certainly. Uh, I mean, uh, be a, a huge negative because whatever, don't forget, what whatever positive he has in the polls is due partly to the good markets and, yeah. and, and the continuation of a good economy that has really, you know, you know, started since we, you know, started the recovery from the Great Recession. So that's a continuation on that. And he doesn't want one of the legs of his, uh, of his support to, to fall out from, from under him. So, you know, he may be, 
uh, much more, we'll see, we may, he may be much more responsive to the blowback from the Republicans uh, and, and people calling up about, hey, you're tanking the market, we thought you were pro-market, yeah. uh, then um, uh, that would cause them to be far more cautious. Matt? Well, um, first of all, um, this move is an attempt to help the steel and aluminum sectors at the expense of every other sector. Um, supporting this inside the White House uh, is Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, who made his fortune in the steel sector. Um, U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer, uh, who has a significant, had a significant number of steel and aluminum clients when he practiced law um, for decades and might even be planning to go back to that practice after he's U.S. Trade Representative with those clients. Uh, and Peter Navallo, Navarro, an economist, which who is considered... Um, shall we say, an outlier economist and who certainly has always told Trump what he wanted to hear. Everyone else in the White House strongly opposed this. Everyone, almost everyone in Congress begged him not to do it. Um, and during the week, uh, you know, I think in the course of the year, he, he hasn't, he struggled with the decision. But over, what happened was Congress, the Commerce Department finished its investigation, which had to happen before he had the power to impose these duties. He's in a three-month period where now he has to make the decision. And according to the Washington Post, he had an emotional meltdown last week because Hope Hicks um, spoke to Robert Mueller and answered some of his questions and then resigned. Uh, and he trusted Hope Hicks very much as a close friend and confidant. And he had an emotional meltdown uh, when he sensed that he – she betrayed him, and this may well have been Donald Trump literally acting out. I mean, he does, he does have a, a great deal of emotional baggage, and, and we're looking at something with very, very serious implications that is supported by two people with conflicts of interest, someone else who's, uh, whose economics are outlying at best, uh, and, and Donald Trump's emotional baggage. I mean, this is a very serious situation and a very serious manifestation of the problem of having someone... Uh, like Mr. Trump in the White House. Well, and it also seems now that with uh, some of the comments he has put out on Twitter today that he is also linking this back to the NAFTA negotiations as well, Matt. Well, yeah, I mean, Canada is the biggest exporter of steel and of aluminum to the United States. Um, and this is not directly connected to, to NAFTA uh, because this type of duty is not is a duty that gets imposed whether or not you have a free trade agreement uh, with the um, the country that's exporting the goods to the United States, only ordinary customs duties uh, get eliminated by free trade agreements, not those special duties like the anti-dumping duties or accountability duties or these national security duties. But the fact is is that uh, the Canadians are are beside themselves for reasons that are not surprising. Um, the NAFTA negotiations, frankly, um, you know, were were struggling anyway. They were they they were going to achieve. Uh, a, a series of very small gains and, and nothing else, and probably going to be put off for a year for the Mexican elections and the U.S. midterms before being completed. And now with this, um, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen there. The idea of, of uh, and I saw this in a couple of articles uh, recently, Matt, the idea of targeted tariffs specifically at China, would that have been maybe a better option? Uh, it's not available. <laughs> okay. Under, under the international trading rules, um, you know, there's two different sets of law here. <clears throat> there's U.S. statute. Remember, the Constitution gives the Congress the power to impose uh, trade barriers. Congress delegates the power to the, to the executive branch in very defined situations. And under the U.S. statute, 
He had to do this investigation to show we had a national security need, uh, and now he has a statutory authority to do it. But under the international law, our obligations um, to, uh, under the World Trade Organization to Canada, Mexico, and 163 total other countries, um, we have obligations that, that prevent us from just imposing these types of duties unless we reach the national security criteria of the international law, which is much tougher, and we don't reach that. It requires that we be in time of war yeah. or in an emergency in international relations. We don't have that. So uh, the long and the short of it uh, is that he's violating the international law. But, um, you know, uh, under the U.S. statute, in this situation, he had to have at least a national security justification. We are joined on the phone by Matt Gold of uh, Fordham University and in studio by uh, uh, Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton School. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We're talking about the potential of steel and aluminum tariffs uh, being mentioned by President Trump possibly later this week. 844-942-7866. Or again, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio111 is the way to reach out if you would like to do that. Uh, I, I guess the other part to it, uh, Professor, Matt mentioned the potential impact that we could see on other products, U.S. products, going to Europe. The EU has kind of hinted at that already. They've already mentioned Harley-Davidson as one of the potential companies that could be filling it. That kind of links back into the, the potential trouble spot that not just steel and aluminum companies would be feeling here in the U.S., but a lot of other companies as well, which obviously plays into into the markets and, and where they're headed in the next oh, yeah. couple of weeks. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's not only outright retaliation. It's also increase the prices for all the users of yeah. steel and aluminum. I mean, you know, you have the auto industry that uses the steel, so you're going to lose auto jobs. You're going to gain steel jobs. What, what are you really doing here? Um, I'd like to ask Matt, and you know, probably more of a history. Uh, I, I do remember Reagan imposed quite a number of re restrictions at one time or another, trying to save manufacturing jobs. Um, it didn't spiral into anything that was that serious on the economy, but um, uh, uh, we we did have some during that that period. So and. Uh, again, when they didn't escalate into something terrible, it did not do permanent uh, harm. But I'm I'm not an expert on 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 that aspect of the trade. Maybe you have a better memory of what Reagan actually imposed. Yeah, um, you know, over and above the ordinary customs duties that we impose, there are five entirely different categories of temporary duties and other trade barriers that we impose in special situations. <clears throat> I don't recall Reagan imposing national security barriers like this um he might have done it on one obscure product and i have to remember what it was a uh, very obscure product but w under the reagan administration we imposed on a temporary basis um anti-dumping duties and countervailing duties and mm -hmm. i and under reagan and w bush uh it's w bush under steel for steel uh, what we call safeguard duties these are in, in precisely divine situations and we were doing it not only complying with u.s law but also the wto law um, you know, in situations where goods come to the United States are being dumped or they're being subsidized or there's a sudden surge, or we are retaliating against a country that violated trade agreements against us. But this fifth category, national security, this has very rarely been done and only uh, on very, for very small, minor, obscure products. Mm -hmm. I guess there was, when, when Trump moved against the solar panels, it was, was that on the dump, on dumping grounds from China? 
that was a safeguard duty, so that's because of a sudden surge. Uh, when he mm. imposed duties on Canadian lumber, those were anti-dumping duties because the lumber was being dumped and countervailing duties because the lumber was being subsidized by the Canadian government. Um, when he almost imposed duties on the Canadian aircraft, those were anti-dumping and countervailing. So those were legal under, this, under the current law, basically? Yeah, the, those were legal under the WTO law. See, with those three types of duties, if he complies with the U.S. statute, which empowers him to do it, he's also complying with the international law almost all the time because the rules for both um, are, are the same. But with, with the national security, the threshold, you know, what kind of serious national security situation we have to have, the threshold is much lower under the U.S. statute than it is under the international law. So he can comply with the U.S. statute and therefore have the authority to do it under U.S. law, but still not be complying with the WTO law, which means that when he does it, the United States is in violation of WTO rules. Mm-hmm. So then how, how would that play out then? What would be the ramifications that would, that would come forth from the WTO? Two things. One, a bunch of trading partners, big ones, will take us to court. They're litigated. It'll take a few years, and they'll get legal authority to retaliate against us. The retaliation they'll be authorized to to commit will be so severe, we'll have to take away these duties immediately if we haven't at that time. But it will take a few years, which is why he's not afraid of that. But the other implication is that many countries will turn around and, and immediately throw up trade barriers. At least they'll be free to throw up trade barriers on U.S. agriculture using the same argument that he's making. He the U.S. government is, is sort of making an argument that we do this does qualify as an emergency in international relations, a national security emergency, um, you know, the situation we have with steel and aluminum. But on the same exact argument, um, which I probably don't have enough minutes to explain, um, other countries could argue that they have the same exact kind of emergency that would allow them to block uh, U.S. agriculture. And right now we're at a time where uh, uh, with the, the United States and, and our agriculture and, and all kinds of different products, this is an important time to keep growing and not have something potentially tearing it down, especially when you're talking about the agriculture issues between the U.S. and Canada right now, Matt. Yeah, that's true, although it's a little different for a contiguous country. What we're right. saying is that if there, if there were a World War III that disrupted op- ocean shipping, a commodity like steel, which really can only come in by ocean, you can't really import steel by air freight very easily, yeah. we wouldn't be able to import enough, uh, and we don't have enough domestic capacity. But if there were a World War III... Uh, that disrupted ocean shipping, other countries wouldn't be able to import enough food because they don't have enough food capacity. They don't have enough food capacity because they import too much American food. We don't have enough steel capacity if we can't use ocean shipping because we import too much steel. It's the same argument the other way. And because those countries would be arguing that the United States is legally right, they'd be able to throw up barriers on U.S. agriculture immediately. What I find interesting with this, Matt, is also the fact that this is seemingly another case uh, of President Trump uh, making a, a dis- type of decision like this and really doing it in support of particular companies, like a, a particular industry, and not necessarily on the overall economy. Yeah, people around him, <clears throat> like Wilbur Ross, as I said, and Bob Lighthizer and Peter Navarro, are definitely <clears throat> focused on, on helping these sectors. Uh, and that's very, very, very troubling, considering the expense to which they're putting every other sector and, and the potential even greater risk. Uh, for the larger U.S. economy and global economy. Uh, Donald Trump himself, he's, he's functioning on a more fundamental level. Every time he makes a speech and says he's going to do this, he gets praise and adoration back, and he craves that adoration, so he keeps saying it. And then everybody else has to scurry around and figure out what they're actually going to do that looks like what he's saying on the campaign trail. Um, <clears throat> but so those three people around him are definitely pushing to help this sector 
Um, and uh, it's troubling, given who, given who they are and where they're coming from. But, Jeremy, is, is it a sector, and with your history and looking at the markets and, and these types of companies, is steel and aluminum, which if you go back 50 years, and I've got you know family in western Pennsylvania that made their living in the steel industry out there for such a long period of time, is this an industry which obviously has had its tough times the last couple of decades? Is it an industry that has a chance to come back even without this type no, of No, I mean, and, and in fact, the workforce has has greatly adjusted already to that. I I I remember when he pulled out of the climate accord. Yeah. You know, and he says, "I have to be thinking of uh, not just Paris because it was called the Paris Accord. Yeah. I have to be thinking of Pittsburgh." Well, the Pittsburgh people got back to him and said, "You know, we're doing real well. Right. Like, you know, you act like we're some sort of depressed town that, you know, when we lost our steel, we we don't have anything going for us. Um, you know, I, I I don't know. It's a sort of a uh, a time past. The adjustment is made. The the jobs have been lost. Actually, we've been gaining minuscule amounts of manufacturing jobs back. Actually, starting during the Obama." administration this recovery has given us a little bit maybe 10,000 a month now we we we're gaining 200,000 a month we're going to have another jobs uh figure on on Friday and and they think 200,000 so 10,000 is not is not that much right, i mean yeah. you're talking about 5% of the new jobs uh that are gained but it's a little bit of a net increase and and we've had it since uh, m- much of obama uh, compared to the loss, I mean, we lost what sixty, seventy percent of the man, yeah. as did almost Europe. I mean, uh, Germany is the only one that managed to keep a lot of it with very specialized and focused uh, manufacturing, uh, not not broad based. So, I mean, um, I I just don't think he's you know. Uh, yeah, I, I think he's got a losing hand here when the Republicans don't have – they're not solidly behind him. Yeah. So if the market re- – if he really gets serious, the market thinks it's serious and starts going down, I, I don't think he has a chance of implementing uh, these measures. Matt? Yeah, I mean, he's doing what he did with NAFTA. He's he's validating myths that his constituency believes, um, myths about an economy past that no longer exists, as Jeremy pointed out, in certain places, in certain sectors, um, and myths about what imports do and what trade agreements do and how they hurt different uh, parts of the U.S. economy. He's, he's, you know, the level, as I said, that Trump's functioning on is I say these words and my constituency gives me praise back while I'm standing at the podium. That's as far as Trump thinks. For Trump himself, there's no analytical thought, no policy, no program. There's just I say these words at the podium and I get adoration and praise back. I call it the adoration of the MAGA. And the fact of the matter is, is that constructing some kind of policy um, comes later from these folks in the White House, some of whom have conflicts of interest and some of whom um, are <clears throat> just don't know what they're doing, um, and some of whom really do know what they're doing, and they argue against these, these kinds of moves. Great having you with us on the phone today, Matt. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks very much. Jeremy, great seeing you again. Thank you. Thanks for coming much. in. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 